Hello and welcome to Battlecast, the show where we talk about the greatest battles in history. I'm Luke, and I'm joining the bunker with First Citizen and Emperor for Life. I'm talking about the man that Robert Mugabe looks up to. I'm talking about Chris, ladies and gentlemen. Chris, say something to the people. Well, Luke, as First Emperor of the North Georgia Bunker, I'll address my subjects when I'm gosh darn ready to. And <laughs> yeah. not a moment for buddy. Uh, excuse me, sir. All right. Hey, I wish everybody in the audience could see Chris right now. I don't know, Chris. You look a little haggard, man. What's going on? I mean, the bags under my eye, the ash and skin. Yeah, you've been doing some methamphetamines or something? Methamphetamines. No, there, Mr. White. <laughs> I have not been doing methamphetamines, although the cocaine is one heck of You've been doing some cocaine. Well, as Chris sorts himself out, we've got another email from Brian in Little Rock. He wants to know if we have any advice for podcasters just starting out. Let me tell you this, Bri Bri. As podcasters just starting out, you need to send me advice, all right? And money. That's right, Bri Bri. Go get the piggy bank and send me some money. <laughs> Well, Brian, I'll answer it for you. The first thing you need to do is drink heavily and alienate your loved ones. That's a good start, but it won't get you where you need to be. Next, you need to spend all your waking hours researching and writing show notes for a topic you love. And lastly, you need to have a thick skin because people on the internet are basically rude and caustic, putting the lie to much of Western philosophy, which holds that man is basically good. And we're going to prove the falsehood of that supposition again tonight as we review the Battle of the Alamo. Wait, 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 wait there, Bri Bri. Let me, let me, let me, I'll hit you with some knowledge right now. What you need to do is you find you a friend who loves books and probably has a basement and doesn't go outside much. And you ride his coattails to podcast glory. And this guy sounds great. Who do, who do we know like that? Uh, no, not nobody you know. <laughs> All right, well, guys. Here at Battlecast, we remember the Alamo. We're going to share the epic story with you tonight. But before we do anything, we've got to do the most important thing. What's that? Crack open a few cold ones, baby. Beer! <laughs> what was that? Beer! That's fun. That's actually how he greets me. He walks in the door and says, Beer! Beer! Alright, today we're drinking Lone Star. Comes in at 4.65% and pours a clear yellow. It's known as the National Beer of Texas. Chris, beers to you, man. What do you think about this beer? Chris. Lone Star. Just just review it. What, what are you doing? He's chugging it. He's holding a finger up. Ah, Lone Star beer. <laughs> what crap bar on Clayton Street did you dig this thing out of? This is on the bottom of the shelf with... with uh, with what is it, High Life, and what used to be, before the hipsters got hold of it, PBR. Hey, man. Old Star Beer. Used to drink this stuff back in the day in college. You must like it. You just pounded half of one. My Uh, God. Well, it is the National Beer of Texas. And, you know, it's basically like a Bud Light. Yeah, uh, I'm going to give this beer 2.5 bullets out of 5. I'm giving it half a bullet just because I love the idea of a state having its own beer. I like how the brand revels in Texas pride. I just think that's cool. The beer itself is your standard Budweiser-type beer. I get a lot of corn flavor in this beer, and hey, you know, sometimes I want a lot more beer. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'll probably give it a 3 out of 5. Just because of the college days of reminiscing when you're oh, four, yeah. and you're just like, yeah, give me, give me, give me a Lone Star, yeah, 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 whatever. I don't care. I'm drunk and I'm, I'm talking to this girl over here. That's actually how you do most of our podcasts. You get drunk and you talk to some chick on yourself. There you go, Brian. That's how you do it. <laughs> and that, you make magic happen. And now, as we drink a little bit of Texas, let's transport ourselves to San Antonio and the Battle of the Alamo. In March of 1836, 
a Mexican army of 4,000 men advanced on the old mission in San Antonio known as the Alamo. Inside, almost 200 U.S. volunteers huddled, awaiting an attack. Most had come to help wrestle the territory of Texas from Mexico. Texas had a lot of land and a lot of riches in terms of, uh, of the future. And many of these people saw the possibility of establishing themselves anew in the West. They saw this as the West. 150 miles from the Alamo, a group of prominent Texans was gathering to sign a Declaration of Independence. The Battle of the Alamo has distant roots. It began in 1727 when a Spanish colony to the north of Mexico was formed. The name of that colony was Tejas, the area that we will come to know as Texas. It was named Tejas after the local Native American population. Settlers had arrived in Texas from Mexico as early as the 1690s. The problem was no one could tame the land. The Native American population was intrinsically hostile to the Spanish settlers and were so successful in devastating their early colonization attempts that Spanish colonization was restricted to small power centers revolving around military, government, and church bases. You know what, Chris? I want to tell you, here's a quote from Texas state historian T.R. Furenbach, and he describes Texas before the Anglo-American colonization, quote, a few miles beyond Nacogdoches, the land became virgin wilderness, with no break to the outskirts of Bexar. The Camino Real, or Royal Road, was more a trace than a highway. Indian raids were common and widespread, reaching even into San Antonio, killing several men and stealing horses and mules. As Stephen Austin noted in his journal, the Spaniards live poorly. The inhabitants have a few horses and cattle, and raise some corn. That's all. End quote. As a consequence, very few Spanish settlers spread out to the interior, which was de facto under the control of extremely hostile Indians. By 1821, the non-native population of Texas was estimated at just 4,000 Spanish settlers spread over the huge expanse of modern Texas. Think about this small population trying to control the seemingly limitless vastness of Texas, a state larger than modern France. As a consequence of the ceaseless Indian raids and the consequent need to develop Texas, Baron de Bastrop, an old friend to an early Anglo-American advocate of Texas settlers, Moses Austin, and insider with the Mexican governmental leadership, decided to act as an agent for American colonization. Led by Moses Austin, a man who wanted to settle 300 Anglo-Americans in Texas, Bastrop argued for Anglo settlement in Texas for three reasons. One, the Indian danger would never end until the country was colonized. The Comanches were acting like they owned the country from Bexar to Louisiana. Now, that's pretty funny considering they're actually the indigenous population. <laughs> Number two, after several centuries, no Spaniards or Mexicans were coming to Texas. In fact, more were leaving it. And number three, Anglo-Saxon colonization had been successful in Louisiana, and there was no other way to put people on the ground. So as early as 1821, and facing a growing domestic crisis, the Mexican government finally decided to grant Moses Austin's request to settle 300 American English-speaking families in Texas. 
Thousands more would follow in the next 20 years. In a historic twist of fate, Moses, like his namesake, died before he could reach the promised land. He begged his son Stephen to play the part of Joshua and bring his people to Texas. Stephen Austin did so. He's the man who the metropolis of Austin, Texas is named after today. Those early settlers were men who regulated themselves. There was very little crime, and their leader, Austin, enforced strict morality. For example, one rule of the colony was, quote, No frontiersman who has no other occupation than hunter will be received. No drunkards, no gamblers, no profane swearers, no idlers. Chris, it looks like you're in trouble, man. I could not have hung out with this dude. <laughs> Drinking, gambling. I mean, and obviously he died before 60 years later and we get the Old West. <laughs> yeah, when people are literally shooting folks in the street, gambling, and uh, bordellos are the... <laughs> uh, that might be a Hollywood Saloons. image. I'm sure that was real, but at the same time, most people were just hard-working farmers. Yeah, Although but, gambling and drinking was widespread in the South at this time. So I Yeah, but once back. you got into a city center, they had a saloon, and the saloon had, had a saloon, and, oh, yes. and hostesses. That's true. All right, well, listen, these rules were enforced. Austin drove a number of families out of his settlement as undesirable, and on more than one occasion ordered unwanted immigrants publicly whipped as an example to the rest. Only four of the original 300 families were illiterate. These are the self-governing pioneers who settled Texas. Historian T.R. Fehrenbach takes up their story. The first year of the colony, 1822 to 23, everything went wrong. Their leader, Stephen Austin, was forced to stay in Mexico before a secession of new independent Mexican governments. A disastrous drought ruined the first crops. Indians attacked and killed a large number of settlers. Immigration to Texas stopped, and some families already went already there went back. But when Austin returned in the summer of 1823, things improved dramatically. He made treaties with local Indian tribes. Americans began to flood into Texas, buying lands that were 10% of the cost they would be in Louisiana. By 1825, Austin's colony had 1,347 whites, 443 slaves in the population. In a single decade, these 1,500 American families chopped more wood, cleared more land, broke more soil, raised more crops, had more children, and built more towns than than the Spanish had in the past 300 years. By 1835, there were 20,000 Anglo-Texans, outnumbering the Mexican population 5 to 1. The American settlers were thriving. Ten years later, they would be at war with a country numbering millions and flush with money from silver mines, but none of them knew it at the time. Ignorant of their future, they worked and they thrived. Now, the United States' boundary with Upper Mexico at this time was along the Sabine and Red Rivers. These borders are important for our story, so I want you to know the area I'm talking about. Essentially, the modern border along Louisiana and Texas is formed by the Sabine River, and that was the same borderline in the 1820s. So when you drive across the bridge to enter Texas from Louisiana, that's the same area early American settlers went to to colonize Texas. American settlers were land hungry. If you've ever been to that part of Texas immediately next to Louisiana, you'll know the geography is very similar to Louisiana which means the methods of production Americans used in the South will work equally well in Mexican Texas. And since no Mexican or Spanish settlers were there to oppose them, Americans began to colonize the land across the Sabine River in ever-mounting numbers. Conflicts had started even before the 1820s. In 1812 to 1813, a group of Mexican rebels combined with American adventurers attacked Spanish power centers in Texas. It's important to note that Mexico is not independent at that time. 
it was still a Spanish colony. The rebel group took San Antonio and La Bahia, but were ultimately slaughtered by the Spanish authorities. One of the leading officers who crushed the short-lived rebellion was Antonio Lopez de Santa Anta Perez de Lebron. Yeah, what a name, right? Yeah. Look at that. Oh, that's uh, the Lebron, man, the king. Yeah, I, I saw Santa Anna and thought Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah, that's a hell of a name, but we're just going to call him Santa Anna. This is important because Santa Anna is going to be the Mexican general charged with taking the Alamo in our battle. So we can see now Santa Anna is already wary of American intentions. He's seen his own men killed and city sacked by American adventurers. It only makes sense that he'll be suspicious of Americans coming into Texas. The situation in Texas is further exasperated because everyone in Mexico is distracted due to the war for Mexican independence, which lasted from 1810 all the way to 1821, 11 years of warfare. This leaves the border with the United States basically open to American immigration into Texas. Americans begin to settle the land bordering Louisiana in ever-increasing numbers. At this time, war is raging across Mexico. Initially, Santa Ana supports the Spanish, but when he realizes independence is inevitable, he switches sides and fights for Mexico. Woo, frontrunner! Independence is achieved in 1821, but then Mexico is raked with internal strife between Mexicans who want a strong central government and those who want a looser federal structure. In May 1822, General Interbide, who had started the war with Spain, declares himself the Emperor of Mexico and takes power. However, Santa Ana helped form a revolt that dethrones Interbide and sets up a Federalist Republican system of government in 1824. So think about this. We've had 11 years of war, <laughs> independence, an emperor for two years, <laughs> who's overthrown by another military man who supposedly sits up a Republican form of government. Non-stop action. Non-stop action, yeah. Now, what's important for the battle we're talking about today is no one in Mexico is really interested in what's going on along the Texas-United States border. The American settlers are arriving peacefully. They're improving the land. And the Mexican central government has bigger problems to deal with, right? That's why the American population in Texas mushrooms. Now, just because the Spanish are busy with the war, they don't completely ignore American settlement. In the late 18-teens, the Spanish authorities offer massive land grants to Americans they feel are loyal on the condition that they accept Mexican citizenship and convert to Roman Catholicism. This is an attempt by the Spanish to limit the number of Americans in Texas by granting huge tracts of land to a small number of settlers they trust. The Spanish believe they can artificially limit the number of Americans crossing from the United States. After Mexico achieved independence, the land grants were renegotiated with the new Mexican Congress, and land was opened up to American settlement again in 1823. That sounds like a dumb idea. Hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you most of the land. Yeah, Yeah, don't invite other people to hang out on the land with you. No, no, don't do that. We're just going to give you all this land. Well, you know, you got to think, they're just getting over a war. But something happened in 1823 that no one had expected. A flood of Americans, 28,000 strong, came into Texas over the next 12 years, quickly swamping the non-Indian Mexican minority, which numbered just 4,000 citizens. The problem was this. The land in Texas was so big that many more Americans could settle it 
even with huge land grants. These Americans are used to a freedom that's almost unknown to any of us today, and they begin to criticize Mexican methods of government and traditions. The Mexicans regard the Americans as complainers and troublemakers and begin to repress them, which drove the two segments of the population even further apart. Here's what one Mexican congressman said in a secret session of Congress in 1830. Mexicans, watch closely, for you know, for you know all too well the Anglo-Saxon greed for territory. We have generously granted land to these Nordics. They have made their home with us, but their hearts are with their native land. We are continually in civil wars and revolutions. We are weak and know it. They also know it. They may conspire with the United States to take Texas from us. From this time, be on your guard. Whoa. And that's kind of funny considering the rhetoric we hear today, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, but, you know, this this guy knows it. I mean, Mexico's mainly located, I mean, hundreds of miles, thousands, a thousand miles to the south of um, so yeah, they 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 know they have this huge territory they can't defend. They have no army and they have no loyal population there. They do have an army there, but the army's not that good. A lot of it is conscript troops, and we're going to get into yeah, that. Yeah, it's it, it's a small army too. It's, it's only a, about one thousand fifteen hundred people. It's a it's a large militia basically. Yeah, almost very yeah. poorly trained troops. Now, one modern historian notes that ethnic differences were a major cause of conflict between Anglo settlers and Mexicans. The two populations were of different religions, and many more people at that time took religious differences quite seriously. In fact, as I said before, a condition of American settlement was that the settlers must convert to Catholicism. Hardly any did so. There was more, though. Here's what a 19th century Texas school book taught Texas children about the cause of the war of Texas independence. Quote, the strongest cause in bringing the Texas Revolution, however, was the lack of sympathy between the Mexican people and the Anglo-Saxon colonists. They could not understand our methods of government, and we could not endure their idea of a republic. End quote. <laughs> Needless to say, the Texans were allowed self-rule and did not take on the governmental customs of the rest of Mexico. Besides, Mexico outside of Texas was in a state of near anarchy from 1821 to the middle of 1830s. Now, if we include the War of Mexican Independence mm -hmm. before that, that's 11 more years of chaos. Yeah, I mean, they have no, there's no setup for them to control Texas. At all. At all. Other than some, the same type of claim they took away from the natives. <laughs> Basically. Now, Texas self-rule helped the American settlers avoid the chaos disrupting Mexico during these years. So in Texas, everything's fine. All this warfare is going on, it doesn't even touch their lives, hardly at all. Yeah, because they, I mean, by this time, these people are probably third or fourth generation Americans. Or, oh, yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, you or count they, from or when or they lived not, in the United States. Yeah, people that have, that have been over here since the English founded it and just continually moved west. Yeah. So they're, they're already used to the government system and a style of collectivization and just entering into their own small local government. There was another aspect to Texas culture that they had inherited from the southern United States. They were more afraid of losing honor than of death. This is the great secret of the Alamo. This is why men rode to fight and die at the Alamo knowing it was hopeless. As Bertrand Wyatt Brown notes in his excellent book, Honor and Violence in the Old South, Southerners counted duty to their family, kin, God, and honor above death. They would rather die than suffer shame. Wyatt Brown explains, quote, If a Southerner lost his freedom, 
He had betrayed kinfolk and manhood. In fact, he had betrayed all things held dear. End quote. Leading Texan William Travis seems typecast to embody Wyatt Brown's quote. Here's how he described the deteriorating situation in Texas in a letter to the United States. We consider death preferable to disgrace. Opening the door for the invaders to enter the sacred territory of the colonies, we hope our countrymen will open their eyes to the danger. I fear it is useless to waste arguments upon them. The thunder of the enemy's cannon and the pollution of their wives and daughters, the cries of their famished children, and the smoke of their burning dwellings. Only this will arouse them. For God's sake, and the sake of our country, send us reinforcements. God in Texas, victory and death. Wow. Could you imagine that? Have you ever heard a speech like that in our lifetime? (laughs) No, people don't talk like that anymore. I know. Well, meanwhile, Santa Ana became ever more despotic. He was addicted to opium. He was corrupt and traded political favors for money. He was a compulsive gambler and slowly pulled power to himself. Until 1829, he was known as Don Demonio, Sir Devil. I want to give you a quote that captures his tyrannical character. He once said, quote, Where I made God, I would wish to be something more. End quote. However, Santa Anna was a strong military leader and possessed a certain charisma. For example, in 1829, the Spanish attempted to retake possession of Mexico. Santa Anna easily defeated them at the Battle of Tampico, which considerably boosted his image among average Mexicans. That's why many Mexicans began to respect him and cease calling him Don Devil, proving again Carl Schmitt's axiom that in politics, protection necessitates obligation. What Schmitt means is if a government successfully protects you, you are obligated to it, even if it is somewhat corrupt. Now, Santa Ana has protected many Mexicans from Spanish reprisals. And now they winked at his indiscretions. Santa Ana used his new popularity to dismiss Congress in 1833, have himself elected president, and began to rule Mexico as a virtual dictator. All this flew completely in the face of the Texans' settlers' political culture. Here's how the famed Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville described American political beliefs in 1835. Quote, The people reign over the American political world as God rules over the universe. It is the cause and the end of all things. Everything rises out of it and is absorbed back into it. Consider the New Englander. He is attached to his township because it is strong and independent. He has an interest in it because he shares in its management. He loves it because he has no reason to complain of his lot. He invests his ambition and his future in it. In the restricted sphere within his scope, he learns to rule society. He gets to know those formalities without which freedom can advance only through revolutions. And he becomes imbued with their spirit and develops a taste for order. In the United States, except for servants and the destitute, fed by the townships, everyone has the vote. And this is an indirect contributor to lawmaking. Anyone wishing to attack the law is thus reduced to adopting one or two obvious courses. They must either change the nation's opinion or trample its wishes underfoot, end quote. In contrast to the American ideal of liberty, T.K. Fehrenbach describes the dictatorship Santa Anna was constructing in 1835, quote, In October 1835, Mexico was declared a centralist state in which the president held absolute 
power. Santa Anna was king, but more than a king, since he owed responsibility neither to the people nor to God. The people of Zacatecas, a state where liberalism had a strong hold, revolted when the regional militias were reduced in favor of the standing army. Santa Anna's regulars defeated and destroyed a Zacatecan force of 5,000. Then Santa Anna disdained to be burdened with prisoners and permitted his troops to rape and plunder the state capital. End quote. Now, Chris, you starting to see why Texas revolted? <laughs> the Santa Ana guy sounds kind of cool, though. I don't think that's cool. Totally absorb absolute power into myself if I ruled an army and it was basically wide open, the Wild West. Yeah, and gambling, doing opium. Awesome. You know, well, you know what? Oswald Spengler said, you have to remember that you are not an island. And the way you treat people tends to come back to you. And oh, well, obviously, politics. Obviously, this guy overextended his hand because he wasn't able, able to really consolidate his power and hold on to everything. Yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for even in foreign policy, treating people the way you want to be treated. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah. You have to have faith. And so this guy, he's not, you know, ask the people of uh, the town he just destroyed if <laughs> he's treating people the way they want to be treated. Oh, they, they, they were not having a good time. No. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the the Wild Bunch movie at the end. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Well, anyways, word of these events reached Texas. The Texan settlers looked at their vast tracts of land, land that had been wild just eight years before. They gazed into their daughters and their wives' eyes, and they saw their farms in flames. They saw their daughters raped. They saw their sons at best expelled, at worst killed, and haunted their dreams. They thought of the fate of Zecatechus, followed them like a wolf. It was instinctual for the Texans to resist. Every bit of their upbringing, their churches, their social system demanded it, and they would gain their freedom or die. Okay, I have to get this out. Every time you say huge, vast tracts of land, then it fell over, it burned down, fell over, then sank into the swamp. But the third one stayed up. <laughs> What's not to like about her? She has huge tracts of, of land. land. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually what attracted me to my wife. In the 1830s, the Mexican central government became concerned about the Americanization of Texas. So finally, after 20 to 30 years of letting it go, (laughs) not being concerned, they're concerned. They should have built a wall. (laughs) (laughs) Accordingly, Santa Ana took a series of steps to reestablish central authority there. First, he increased the military garrison in Texas proper. Second, he banned further American immigration into Mexico. This was ultimately ineffective. Americans continued to sell the land in Texas anyway. <laughs> Conflict was ensured. Yeah, I know. That's kind of funny. <clears throat> and there was one man who would ultimately be at the center of the conflict, Sam Houston. Houston was the son of Scottish immigrants and 39 years old when he crossed into Texas. He had already led a strange and exotic life. He was an ex-general of militia, ex-governor of Tennessee. He practiced law. He had been wounded twice in 1812. He was a personal friend and advisor to President Andrew Jackson and had been adopted by the Cherokee Indians, where he returned after his failed marriage. Now, I love this. The Cherokees gave him an Indian name that's simply classic. What was it? His Indian name was Big Drunk. Because he stayed drunk all the time after his failed marriage. Boom, big drunk. That's my boy. I can hang out with Sam Houston. (laughs) Me, Sam Houston, and Old Hickory just hanging out. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, it would be awesome. Wasn't that your name in college? Big drunk. (laughs) That's what we called you. Uh, Could have been. All right. I don't remember. 
So, Sam Houston's becoming a leader in local Texas politics. Meanwhile, Santa Ana is fighting and winning a civil war against Mexicans fed up with his despotic rule. From 1832 to 1835, Santa Ana crushed his Mexican rivals and becomes essentially a dictator. In June 1835, Texas settlers intercepted a message from Santa Ana notifying local Mexican leaders that he was going to suspend civil government in Texas and personally clamp down on dissent in the state. It was during this time of increased tension that Stephen Austin was released from prison. Austin had lived in Texas since 1825 when he brought 300 families to settle the land and is widely regarded as the father of Texas. Before his release from jail, Austin has always counseled peace with the Mexican government. But now, with Santa Ana increasingly becoming a tyrant, threatening Americans in Texas, Austin believed war with Santa Ana was inevitable. Here's what he said about the dictator. Santa Ana is a base, unprincipled, bloody monster. War is our only recourse. We can have no halfway measures, but war in full. If Austin wanted war, Santa Ana was ready to give it to him. Things came to a head with a minor skirmish at the small Texas town of Gonzales. In this town, there was an old cannon that was almost worthless. The local Mexican commander dispatched troops from San Antonio to confiscate it. Similar to the British attempting to confiscate arms in the events leading up to the American Revolution, the local Texan militia in Gonzales organized resistance and hung a huge banner over the cannon that simply read, quote, Come and take it. End quote. Isn't that some kind of famous bumper sticker you see? Yeah, this is where the bumper sticker comes from oh, and wow. shirts and the flags. Sometimes it has an AR 15 instead of a cannon. Okay. But yeah, this yeah, is where yeah. that comes from. Yeah. Now, the war for Texas independence began on October 2, 1835, just south of Gonzales, Texas, where the small Texan militia leveled a volley into the oncoming Mexican troops. The Mexicans broke and fled. One Mexican was killed in the skirmish. Thousands more men would die as a consequence. The war had begun. The war's begun, yes! This is awesome. I, I never learned so much about pre, the prehistory of Texas. Um, you know, I've never had this much knowledge about Santa Ana. Usually when they recount him, they just talk. He was the Mexican battle commander. You don't know that he was a gambler, Oakland addict. Dictator. <laughs> Dictator. Satan, so, sir devil. Yeah. You, my friend, my book friend, did a fabulous job researching this. Hey, I'm I appreciate pumped, it. and I'm ready to remember the freaking Alamo. Uh, me too, brother. Well, all right, Chris. So what do you think about the events so far? The war is beginning. I want to point out that when a ruler has something bad in store for a populace, he tries to take their weapons away. We saw this in Scotland during the various English oppressions. We saw this again during the American Revolution, and we're seeing it at the skirmish in Gonzales. Chris, do you think the Americans were justified in seeking to create their own country? Well, I don't know. Does uh, Mel Gibson show up in this one, too? <laughs> Does he show up and kick butt like he did in England and the American Revolution? No, unfortunately, they haven't. Okay, well, yet. if Mel Gibson's not going to show up, then, you know, um, you know, I think I think the um, Americans are justified in creating their own country. You know, when it gets to the point, they outnumber the Mexicans. They've developed the land. They've settled the land, you know. The Mexicans are trying to take their gun, guns away. They're trying to impose law 30 years after after the fact. Well, I think another thing to focus on is the dis- despotism of Santa Anna. And we've, we've already had an emperor before. We've had basically 35 years of civil war well, or war. So at this time, is Santa Anna the president of Mexico? or is he, he is now, he has declared himself like an emperor. 
Okay, so he's so, the new Emperor Fly. So he's technically the head of the Mexican government, but nobody's voted him. He's to the Texas point of view, this guy's never been voted to anything. He's just a generalissimo who declared himself in charge and has an army. He has been voted in and he just kinda stayed. <laughs> he just kinda I like how your hand just kinda trailed. He just kinda stayed. Yeah, I mean <laughs> There's a lot of show around it, too, you know. Uh, Just think about Hitler when he said, give me four years. That's what he famously said in 1933. Also, Santa declared himself himself emergency powers. But it just kind of slowly happens. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, yeah. And plus, there's a civil war, which gives him a good excuse, too. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's an emergency. Exactly. It doesn't sound like if you revolt against Santa Ana... That's that town he sacked. It, things don't really go good for you. <laughs> yeah, well, they probably didn't have as many guns as the Texans had. At the start of the war, the Mexican commander on the ground is Santa Ana's brother-in-law, General Martin Perfecto de Cos. What a name. Cos has 1,400 men under his command in Texas, but these are very inferior troops. Many of them are even prisoners. However, he does get reinforcements, and they are of a higher quality. Meanwhile... About 500 Texans have gathered at Gonzales. Some have combat experience, but most were simply citizen farmer soldiers. They were good marksmen, but not formally trained in combat tactics. Now, Stephen Austin took command of the group, but he was very sick and not up to the task of forming the men into a formidable military unit. At the same time, the American settlers are holding a convention in San Felipe, Texas, to decide the future of the territory. After a few weeks, there were about 300 Texans still under arms, and they democratically voted to attack San Antonio, Texas. Commander Austin gave in to their demands reluctantly. On October 27th, the Texan settlers attacked a much larger Mexican force and were utterly victorious. The Texans lost one man in the fighting, but 67 Mexicans were killed and around 65 wounded in the battle. The Texans were led by James Bowie, the man whose knife is known around the world as the famous Bowie knife. With his infamous knife, Bowie carved a reputation for himself out of the dead men in a wildly reported duel called the Sandbar Fight. Here's how one historian described Bowie. Bowie roamed the country exploring Texas and fighting Indians. He fitted in easily with the best of society, but he also had enormous respect from the wildest and meanest men on the harshest of all of Americans' frontiers. He was a killer. He killed the son of Jean Lafitte, the famous pirate who crossed him. He crippled bloody Sturdivant. He gutted Major Norris Wright and a verified number of other men in the most desperate duels imaginable. He made the great knife his brother Resin forged for him a glittering legend. Soon, Bowie, Bowie knives were manufactured in England for sale on the American frontier. He was respected everywhere. End quote. Bowie was described as a super patriot by his contemporaries and, since his wife's death in 1833, Bowie had relied on the bottle to be his intimate companion and help meet. In spite of their success, General Koss fell back into a fortified position that was unassailable with Bowie's limited number of troops. Consequently, he besieged Koss's army. In the meantime... The San Felipe, Texas Convention met and sent Stephen Austin to ask the United States for aid in the coming war with Mexico. Sam Houston traveled widely and solicited support from Americans living in the United States. I want you to listen to this speech, and I hope it helps you realize why one of the largest cities in America, Houston, is named after this man. War in defense of our rights, our oaths, and our Constitution is inevitable. 
If volunteers from the United States will join their brethren in this section, they will receive liberal bounties of land. Let each man come with a good rifle and 100 rounds of ammunition and come soon. Our war cry is liberty or death. We are but one people. Our father side by side fought the revolution. We have the finest country on the face of the globe. We invite you to enjoy it with us. We will secure our constitutional rights and privileges or we shall leave Texas a howling wilderness. March! Victory awaits you. The genius of liberty has unfurled her banners and will crown her children with imperishable laurels. Let the tyrant fall in a war of extermination. Throughout the United States, but especially in the South, man answered the call. Texas flooded with men in arms, all of it from private sources. The United States was officially neutral in the conflict. This really is amazing to consider. American citizens simply read about the conflict in their newspapers and then went to Texas to join the cause of Texas freedom. Some private citizens even formed companies such as the New Orleans Grays. The Texans' ranks swelled with the influx of newcomers. Though still outnumbered, now Texas had a fighting chance to hold off Santa Ana's invasion. Meanwhile, the Texans were still besieging the Mexican garrison at San Antonio. The siege, called the Siege of Bixar, had begun in October 1835. There was a problem, though. The Texas troops were all volunteers, many of them just regular individual guys who showed up from the United States ready to fight. As such, they completely and totally lacked discipline, and all decisions depended on a vote from the officers. The siege wore on until winter. The Mexican garrison was a battalion of heavily entrenched men. It would be hell to storm their position. Finally, Colonel Ben Millam, a Kentucky adventurer who had fought for Mexican independence and then been jailed because of his loyalty to Republican government, one day he simply yelled in the streets, Boys, who will come with old Ben Millam into San Antonio? Just like that, over 400 men volunteered on the spot, and Colonel Millam, like a second Coriolanus, led the charge into the city. The Texans were outnumbered almost two to one during the battle. It was a bloody struggle that lasted four days. The Texans split into two columns and advanced down two separate streets towards the city center. Here is how one modern historian described the siege of Bexar. On December 5th, while Colonel Millam and Francis W. Johnson led two divisions in a surprise attack that seized the Vermendi and Garza houses north of the plaza in San Antonio, Mexican cannon and musket fire kept the Texans from advancing farther during the day and silenced one of the Texan cannons. That night and the next day, the Texans destroyed some buildings close to them and dug trenches to connect the houses they occupied. On the 7th, the Texans captured another nearby house, but Ben Millam, the man who had led the charge, died from his sharpshooter's bullet. Johnson then directed another night attack that seized the Navarro house. On December 8th, the Mexican garrison was reinforced with over 600 reinforcements, but only 170 of these were experienced soldiers. Untrained conscripts formed the other 450 men, who brought with them few supplies. Now, the Texans sent 100 more men into town to join the Texan force that captured the buildings of Zambrono Row in bloody hand-to-hand -hand fighting. The Mexican commander, Koss, ordered his cavalry to threaten the Texan camp, but they found it well defended. That night, two companies of Texas soldiers seized the priest's house on the main plaza, but they were cut off from the rest of the Texas army. On the third day, the assault went on. Some houses were reduced room by room. 
battering rams made of logs knocked down doors and rifle butts smashed in Mexican faces. The Mexicans responded with heavy cannonades which knocked down walls but killed few Texans. The Mexican commander's nerve had fled. 179 Mexicans with six officers deserted and fled. When Koss sought to concentrate his troops at the Alamo, four companies of his cavalry rode away rather than continue the struggle against the Texans. Koss then asked for surrender terms on the morning of December 9, 1835. The Texas commander Burleson accepted the surrender of most of the Mexican equipment and weapons, but allowed Koss and his men to retire southward because he could not handle the increased number of prisoners. He couldn't feed them. Texas casualties numbered 30 to 35, while Mexican losses primarily in one infantry battalion, which defended San Antonio, totaled about 150. The difference reflected the greater accuracy of the Texan rifles. Most of the Texas volunteers went home after the battle, which left San Antonio and all of Texas under their control. The Texans, numbering around 400 men, had defeated a Mexican force of 1,400 men. The capture of San Antonio and the expulsion of Mexican troops left the Texans in complete and total control of the territory. If Mexico was going to regain control, it must be asserted from outside. Inside, the territory was de facto independent. And there was one more thing. No one knew it at the time, but the Texans had captured a church and mission on the outskirts of San Antonio, whose name would be remembered in history forever. It was called the Alamo. There was a problem, though. After San Antonio fell, most Texans thought the war was over and simply went home. Thus, the Texas garrison at San Antonio had just 104 men left to defend the city, a city that had previously been garrisoned by 1,400 Mexicans. The garrison was commanded by Colonel James Neal. Neal's command post was a little-known church named the Alamo. Colonel Neal set to fortifying the mission. Green Jameson, a Kentucky engineer, completely reinforced the defenses. Here's how one historian describes the Alamo after Jameson's fortifications. The derelict mission church had strong walls, if no roof. There was a two-story stone building called the Long Barracks and a single-story low barracks pierced by the main gate, itself protected by an earthwork lunette, a sort of earthen wall that juts out towards the enemy like an arrowhead. More than 20 Mexican cannon had been abandoned in the Alamo, which were remounted and placed upon earthworks. There were ramparts inside the 12-foot-high wall which surrounded the Alamo compound, a rough rectangle enclosing about three acres. Its perimeter stretched to about a quarter of a mile, requiring a huge garrison to defend it adequately. The weakest section was a 75-foot gap in the wall between the low barracks and the church. It was closed by a palisade of earthworks. As an improvised fortress, it had more weaknesses than strengths. End quote. Meanwhile, the Texas government and army were in chaos. Many of the Texans at Alamo were starving due to lack of food. They were never paid, and many deserted the garrison. At the same time, Santa Ana, incensed by the fall of San Antonio, was organizing an army to invade and wipe out the Texas Republic. Here's how one historian describes Santa Ana's army, quote, Santa Ana's force contained a corps of experienced, if somewhat venal officers and some well-disciplined troops. Modeled upon Napoleonic lines, the Mexican army assembled by Santa Ana included both regular and active militia troops, the latter virtually as competent as the former, end quote. By mid-April, Santa Ana's army had swollen to around 7,500 men. And remember, at this time, there's 104 men at the Alamo. The overall commander of the Texan forces was Sam Houston. 
His plan was to draw Santa Ana deep into Texas, stretching his supply lines and harassing his troops. Then, when the time was right, Houston would strike a hammer blow that would force Santa Ana to sue for peace. Accordingly, Houston sent Jim Bowie with 30 men to the Alamo garrison with orders to destroy the fort and withdraw. The 30 men sent from Houston arrived at the Alamo and found the garrison almost totally ineffective. There were now only 80 men left who had not deserted, but these 80 men were ready and willing to fight. Bowie held a conference with Neal, where it was decided to stay at the Alamo rather than surrender the valuable cannons the Texans had captured from Mexico. Therefore, Bowie took steps to ensure the garrison was supplied with food and issued a call for reinforcements throughout the territory. Here was his call to action, quote, we cannot be driven from the post of honor. Colonel, Colonel Neal and myself have come to this solemn resolution that we will rather die in the ditches than give up our position to the enemy. End quote. On September 1st, after a grand review of his army, Santa Ana led 7,500 men into Texas. It was a nightmare from the beginning. Philip Haythorne Waithe describes the Mexican advance like this. The Mexican army shuffled and starved its way through the dust and later the snow of the hills of Mexico, leaving a trail of broken transports, corpses, and dead pack animals. Reduced to half rations, the soldiers ate mesquite nuts and other vegetation. Dysentery followed and felled even more. Meanwhile, reinforcements had begun to arrive at the Alamo. First there was William Travis with 30 men, then came frontiersman Davy Crockett leading his Tennessee company of mounted volunteers. Crockett was already famous as a bear hunter, Indian fighter, and ex-congressman. The men jostled to take gawks at the famous warrior. By February 10, 1836, the Alamo garrison numbered 142 men. The men came from all corners of the United States as well as England, Scotland, Ireland, France, and Mexico. It was at this time that Colonel Neal took a 20-day leave. The command of the Alamo fell to William Travis. However, because Jim Bowie was so well regarded by the men of the garrison, in practice Travis agreed to share command with Bowie. On February 23, Santa Ana... His army swelled with reinforcements arrived in San Antonio a whole month earlier than the men had expected. Suddenly, the garrison of 150 men and 25 non-combatants was under siege. The battle for the Alamo had begun. Santa Ana immediately began surrounding the Alamo. One of the first things he did was hoist the red flag on the church bell tower. It was a symbol that Santa Ana intended to kill the entire garrison, Prisoners would not be taken. Meanwhile, Travis was not wasting time. He sent messengers calling for aid to the nearest Texan towns. There was no response. On February 24th, the Mexicans began shelling the men in the Alamo. It was then, while the shells were falling outside his door, that Travis wrote his most famous message. This is it, quote, to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, my fellow citizens and my compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours, and I have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender, otherwise the garrison are to be put to the sword. If the fort is taken, I have answered the demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and of everything dear to the American character to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand in five 
or six days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his own country. Victory or death, William Barrett Travis, Lieutenant Colonel. P.S. The Lord is on our side. End quote. Here is more than a desperate call from a doomed garrison, though it is that. Travis is showing us the core of part of America. I know it's not the only part of America. I know there are two streams of values and major identities in the American identity. But still, Travis is showing us the core of one of those streams, much like Yukio Mishima talked about the core of the Japanese character. What does Travis say are the things dear to the American character? Liberty. The freedom to do what you want. This was a lived experience. Bruce Catton writes in his history of the Civil War that in the South at this time, Southerners had virtual fiefdoms on their estates. They were almost free from outside interference. They decided justice on their estates. They disciplined their children without interference from social workers. They even educated their children. They regulated themselves. This same freedom was granted to the lower classes. You'll notice I didn't say this ideal of freedom was good or bad. I wouldn't presume to force value judgments on you. You're an adult. Decide for yourself. The day Travis wrote his famous letter was the same day he took overall command of the garrison at the Alamo. Bowie was sick and could no longer direct the battle. The bombardment continued on February 25th, and a firefight developed between Mexicans scattered throughout the peasant shacks to the south of the Alamo and Crockett's Tennesseans. One historian described the battle in this way. The Tennessee Company had been assigned the most vulnerable section of the defenses. The stockade on the south face. They were supported by artillery in the lunette and the chapel, which was directed by the Alamo's two artillery officers. A lightning raid burned the shacks which could have sheltered Mexican sharpshooters. The garrison suffered no casualties. Meanwhile, Travis's earlier message to Gonzalez had been heeded by the 25-strong Gonzalez Ranging Company of Mounted Volunteers. Knowing the critical situation of the Alamo, they freely elected to join Travis, even Isaac Millsaps, who had a blind wife and seven children to support. Led by George Kimball, a New York hatter, and including the town sheriff and an English shoemaker, the tiny unit left all that was dear to them and slipped quietly into the Alamo and history itself just after midnight on the 29th. History contains few nobler actions than their decision to join Travis in his perilous position. At the same time, Travis's widely reported appeals were stirring Texas public opinion to action. On March 2nd, the Territorial Convention declared Texas an independent republic. Messages continued to filter out of the Alamo, calling for help. Perhaps more touching, though, were the personal letters the defenders sent to loved ones. Consider Millsap's letter to his wife and seven children. My dear ones, we are in the fortress of Alamo, a ruined church that has most fell down. The Mexicans are here in large numbers. They've kept a steady rate of fire since we got here. Early this morning I watched the Mexicans drilling just out of range. There are many cannons. Some here believe the main enemy has not come up yet. Colonel Bowie is down sick. I saw him yesterday and he is still ready to fight. He tells all that help will be here soon and it makes us feel so good. We have beef and corn to eat, but no coffee. Travis stays on the wall some, but mostly to his room. If we fail here, I want you to get to the river with the children. All Texas will be before the enemy. We get so little news here, we know nothing. There's no discontent here among our boys. Some are tired, though, from lack of sleep and rest. The Mexicans are shooting every few minutes, but most of the shots do no harm. 
I don't know what else to say, my darling. They are calling for all the letters. Kiss the dear children for me and believe as I do that all will be well and God protect us all. I hope you get this and know I love you all. Isaac. On Friday morning, March 4th, the Mexicans pushed a cannon to within 250 yards of the Alamo's walls. Every shot from the cannon penetrated the defenses. The walls were old and crumbling. Isaac Millsap's children would be seeing the river soon. Desperately, Travis called for aid. Men hundreds of miles away were organizing to help him. But as the walls literally crumbled around him, Travis knew they would never get there in time. The Alamo was cut off. Despair was thick in the garrison. You could almost see it. Crockett was for marching out into the open and death charging the Mexicans in one glorious charge. That's when Travis called the men together and made a speech. The text of the speech died with the men in the Alamo, but from his previous letters we know that Travis told his men he planned to fight to the last man and kill as many Mexicans as possible. Here was an American Kurabayashi. I'm reminded of Coriolanus's speech to his soldiers. If any such be here, as it were sin to doubt, that love this bloody mask wherein you see me smeared, if any fear lesser his person than an ill report, if any think brave death outweighs bad life, and that his country is dearer to him than himself, let him alone, or so many so minded, wave thus and follow me into battle. Tradition has it that Travis drew a line in the sand and called for volunteers to step across it and die with him. Is told that Bowie made the men carry his sick bed across the line. Likewise, David Crockett stepped across. All the defenders did, except one. It's a little thing, stepping across a line. But this was a line of death. One wonders what it is like to live knowing you are going to die in a few hours or days. It still happens in our day and time. The terminally ill, the death row inmate, but still, what would it be like? Listener, you're going to die. I know you never think about it, but each day you step over a line like those men in the Alamo. My uncle died three months ago. He went to sleep and he never woke up. If you knew you were going to die in a few days, would you tell that girl that you love her? Would you make peace with your father? Would you call your mom? Friends, just do it anyways. Make the peace now. Call the girl now. Game of Thrones can wait. Your stupid meeting at work can wait. Chasing a dumbass career can wait. I met a former president of an airline at a fancy old folks' home two months ago in Johns Creek. I swear this is true. Formerly, he had owned one of the most beautiful and tasteful estates in Atlanta. It was beautiful, I can assure you. Now he was drooling on himself. Now he stared vacantly at the walls with only strangers to check on him, including me. All of his former accolades, positions of power, and money meant nothing now. Listener. Get out there and live higher and live better. Get out there and be the change you want to see. Now let's get back to the story. On March 6, the final battle came. Santa Ana had been reinforced by a brigade of troops on March 3rd and now had over 2,000 men at his disposal for the assault. About 1,800 men were employed in the assault on the Alamo in four columns plus a reserve. The first column would strike to the northwest corner. Remember, the Alamo is set up like a large rectangle. So they're going to hit the northwest corner of the rectangle. The second column at the northeast of the fort. On the east side, another column would strike, and on the south side, yet another column would attack. The attackers followed the standard European practice of attacking in column, with the light troops on either flank as a screen. 
All columns carried scaling ladders and crowbars. On the morning of March 6, the attack began. At 5 a.m. on March 6, a bugle call sounded from the Mexican lines and a shout of Viva Santa Ana! Travis's adjutant and official second-in-command, Captain John J. Bow, was on the walls as duty officer. He ran towards the barracks, shouting, Colonel Travis! The, the Mexicans are coming! He Grabbing his shotgun, Travis ran to the north wall, crying time and again, Hurrah, my boys! Today's the day! The Alamo cannon fired a few shots and decimated one column advancing towards the Alamo, but soon the Mexicans were at the walls, and the cannon could not be lowered far enough to fire on them. The Texans now relied upon their rifles, some men having four or five loaded and stacked beside them. Scaling ladders were raised. Travis, leaning over the wall, was shot in the head and rolled down the rampart, dying. Texan fire forced all but Morales' column to congregate at the north, where they congested for some time, being decimated by the rifle fire of the Texans. That's when the Texans heard something. A strange sound filled the air. The Mexican band stuck up, struck up the Deguelo, the Spanish tune of no quarter. Deguelo literally means to cut the throat. It meant that the Spanish were taking no prisoners. This was the song that the Texans heard as they died. It was probably the committing of the reserve which gave the Mexicans the impetus to scale the repaired breach in the north wall. The Texans were spread too thin to cover all the lines of attack. Though they took few casualties and inflicted many more, the Mexicans were swarming below the walls, too many to count, too many to even shoot. Like a flood, a tidal wave of humanity. As the north wall was scaled, another group of Mexicans burst through a small side door in the fort. The defenders no longer fought to win. They charged into the Mexican soldiery to kill as many as they could. These troops had seen much cruelty and understood it well, but they had never seen the savagery of the Appalachian American at close range. The Texans had no bayonets, but by Mexican standards they were enormous men, towering a head higher or more. They smashed, butted, they even used tomahawks and knives. They died like reincarnated Spartans each with his ring of surrounding dead. The Mexicans had crushing numbers. They killed, and after they had killed, they mutilated the bleeding corpses with hundreds of wounds. At this time, the commander of the Texans ordered his men to fall back to a fortified building called the Long Barracks, where the men would make their final stand. There were Mexican sharpshooters everywhere, and as the men made rush sprints for the Long Barracks, Many of them were cut down in mid-stride. Some tried to break out, but the Mexican cavalry were waiting. They trampled the Texans underfoot. The horses crushing fathers away from their children, making widows of the mothers of Texas. The Mexicans turned the captured Texas cannons on the long barracks and began to blast it with the cannon shot. Imagine the scene. Thousands of Mexicans with artillery pummeled around and shot into one small building inside the barracks. Men screamed, fought, and died, the air thick with the smoke from their rifles. The Mexicans burst into the long barracks where they found Bowie severely sick and unable to lift his rifle. They threw his body onto their bayonets. All of the Texans, wounded and unwounded, were shot or bayoneted. The 18-pound cannon was swung around to blow the doors of the church, where Dickinson still held out with James Boham, the South Carolina officer who had returned to die at the Alamo after carrying a fruitless appeal for aid. Charging into the church, the Mexicans slaughtered anyone who moved, including the two young sons of the English gunner, Anthony Wolfe. The Irish volunteer Robert Evans attempted to blow up the powder stored in the church, but was shot down by 6.30 a.m., March 6th, the Alamo lay silent. 
Thankfully, the children and women were spared. The six Texans who surrendered were another matter. They were personally ordered to be hacked to death by Santa Anna himself. 182 Texans died in the battle. Santa Anna's exact losses are unknown, but estimates range anywhere from 600 to 1,600 casualties. At a minimum, the Texans had killed more than three Mexicans for every one Texan. The story of the Alamo is equal to Leonidas and his doomed Spartans. And yet, how many of you knew the story before I told you? All of you commuting in Austin, Dallas, and Houston, look at the land surrounding you right now. It was given you by the bravest of the brave. They are worthy of remembrance. Their story deserves to be told. The epic defense, especially the death of the national hero Crockett, caused public opinion in the United States to swing wholly behind the Texans in terms of volunteers, material, and cash. Consider this poem published by the New Orleans Commercial Bulletin reflecting the outrage of the United States. Vengeance on Santa Anna and his minions, vile scum upboiled from infernal regions, the off-scouring baseness of hell's blackest legions, too filthy far with crawling worms to dwell, and far, far too hard and too base for hell. At the Battle of San Jacinto, Sam Houston would lead the Texans with the war cry, Remember the Alamo! In that battle, Houston soundly defeated Santa Ana and took him prisoner. Ultimately, the Battle of San Jacinto led to led the independence of Texas in 1836 until the independent nation joined the United States in 1845. It was a heroic defense of the men at the Alamo, the humble men like Isaac Millsaps, along with the ferocious men like William Travis, that inspired the imagination of Texas and the United States. Their example still inspires many today, and certainly inspired the men fighting at San Jacinto. But that's another podcast. What? We're stopping? Let's keep going. No, we're stopping now. More podcast! No, you won't let me get drunk until we finish. Alright, let's go so drink. We're, we're totally stopping. Alright, I'm down with that. Another episode in the book, Luke. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. We always appreciate it. And hit that subscribe button for instant Battlecast whenever Luke posts the new episodes. If you have any questions, please email us at battlecastnet at gmail.com. Also find our Facebook page that I promise I will update with my particular goings on and when the new episodes and bonus content hits the website. And that's it for me in the North Georgia Bunker. Join us next month as we head across the world and recount the Battle of Mogadishu. And I'll leave you with your ears getting their throats slit. It's the Deguelo, the song the Mexican band played as they mutilated the defenders of the Alamo. And as you listen to this, think how many movies you've watched whose soundtracks were obviously influenced by Santa Ana's choice of music. Yet another example of military history influencing our world today. I'm Luke, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye. Go dogs!